In January of 2019, officers began to surveil Jerry Westrom with the goal of obtaining a DNA sample. He worked in Waite Park, Minnesota, a suburb of St. Cloud. They searched his Facebook page to see where he liked to hang out. Because his page was publicly viewable, they learned that his daughter, Kay, played ice hockey for the College of St. Scholastica. So, on January 4, 2019, the investigators became hockey fans. They intended a St. Scholastica hockey game in Duluth, where Jerry was cheering on his daughter's team. The surveillance team immediately recognized him based on views of his driver's license photograph, booking photographs, and his online social media. Unfortunately, at this game, they didn't observe him throwing anything out which they could collect and analyze for DNA. So on January 5th, Sergeant Caracostas attended another college hockey game at the University of St. Thomas. Westrom was there, and again, he didn't throw anything out which they could collect. They decided on a different tactic. They learned from social media that Westrom worked for a crop revenue management company in the Waite Park location. Special Agent Bokers went to the Marketplace Mall to check out where Jerry worked and saw that the company's offices had glass windows inside the mall. Bokers loitered outside and could see through the walls that one of the desks had a visible name tag that said Jerry Westrom. On January 15th, Sergeant Caracostas and Special Agent Bokers sat in the parking lot at the Marketplace Mall in unmarked cars. They arrived at 9 a.m. and waited. At approximately 12.30, a white Ford F-150 bearing a license plate consistent with Jerry Westrom's parked in the lot. Jerry got out and walked into the mall. After he went inside at 12.43 p.m., Sergeant Caracostas parked his vehicle next to the white truck and used BCA swabs to swab the driver's door handle. The officers took pictures of the truck and then continued to wait outside the mall. At 3 o'clock, Westrom walked out and went into the next-door Orange Theory Fitness location in the Marketplace Strip Mall. Shout out to Orange Theory. At approximately 4 o'clock, he left Orange Theory and returned to his office. Then he left the mall and drove home. The law enforcement officers followed him and observed his white truck backed into the driveway at his residence at 27192 Bayshore Circle in Isanti. The officers continued to surveil Westrom, waiting for their chance to obtain some more DNA. Car door handle DNA can be tricky, and it can be more difficult to get a good sample than from, say, a used Kleenex or a cigarette butt. Unfortunately, Westrom was not a smoker. On the 25th, Special Agent Bokers noted that Westrom's Facebook page reflected that he was on the road in Madison, Wisconsin, attending an organic farming conference. Police notes say that on a hunch, they guessed Westrom might attend a college hockey game that was scheduled between his daughter's school, the College of St. Scholastica, and the University of Wisconsin-Concordia. It was to take place at the Ozaki Ice Arena in Mequon, about 90 minutes from Madison. So, Special Agent Bokers googled hotels in the Mequon area, and his first call was to a Holiday Inn Express in nearby Brown Deer. Bokers requested the front desk personnel to transfer the call to the room of Jerry Westrom. The front desk person confirmed the last name and said, one moment, and then transferred the call to a room. Special Agent Bokers immediately hung up. Sergeant Caracostas then telephoned the Brown Deer Police Department and asked an officer to do a drive-by the Holiday Inn Express to see if Westrom's F-150 was parked in the lot. Guess what? It sure was. Sergeant Caracostas and Special Agent Bokers arrived at the Holiday Inn Express at 2 a.m. on January 26th. Special Agent Bokers checked into room 321 and Sergeant Caracostas into room 309. They had verified that Westrom and his wife, L were in room 327. 
I'm assuming that they requested to be placed in rooms near his and to have a view of the parking lot so they could see his truck. The two investigators went down to breakfast in the lobby at 6.30, which was the time that the breakfast service commenced. They sat at different tables and pretended not to know each other and basically waited for Westrom to arrive. They were hoping to grab something that he likely left DNA on, like a straw or a cup. At 7.15, Westrom walked into the lobby and got some food. He sat down to eat and remained there until just after 10 a.m. During this time, he made several trips to the food area and talked to some other hockey parents. His wife, Elle, joined him at breakfast for a time. At some point, Westrom said good morning to Special Agent Bokers as he passed him in the lobby area. Then he and his wife went up the elevator. Checkout time was at noon, and from his window, Bokers observed Westrom and his wife take their luggage out to the pickup truck around that time. Meanwhile, Sergeant Caracostas watched as the hotel cleaning staff started to enter the vacant rooms on the third floor. One cleaner went into room 327, Westrom's room, and took the bedding and then left, handily propping the door open for the cleaning crew. Sergeant Caracostas and Special Agent Bokers entered the room and removed two cups with hot chocolate residue in them. While wearing gloves, they also dumped out two small bags of trash from trash cans next to the bed and in the bathroom. They collected two coffee lids, two plastic forks, and two plastic spoons from the garbage and left the hotel with evidence in hand. I guess they decided to cover all their bases because later that day, at 4 o'clock, they attended a hockey game at the Ozaki Ice Arena. They monitored the lobby concession area. Luckily, this wasn't a huge hockey arena with multiple concession stands. Sure enough, Jerry Westrom walked into the lobby concession area at the first period intermission. He ordered a hot dog and sat at a picnic table right there and ate it. Special Agent Bokers watched Westrom wipe the left side of his mouth with a paper napkin. He watched as Westrom put the paper napkin into the cardboard hot dog container and walked back toward the rink. Westrom dumped the container with the used napkin into the trash next to the doors leading into the rink area and proceeded through the doors and back to his seat. Within 15 seconds, investigators were next to the trash can. Special Agent Bokers observed the cardboard trash container and napkins sitting upright inside the bin. There was very little trash in the trash bin and no similar items were observed, so it wasn't possible to confuse them as they were sitting on top of the pile. Also, no one had put anything in the trash in the few seconds between when Westrom dumped his garbage and Special Agent Bokers swooped in. Bokers stared at the napkin and looked around to see if anyone was watching. This from his later trial testimony, quote, I looked around to see who else was in the lobby and the traffic within the arena, and I observed about a 10-year-old male within the arena walking toward the lobby, and he was holding a very large cherry-flavored ice slurpee that was about half gone, and he made eye contact. When I looked at him, he didn't come in, but he had me concerned that he was going to throw the Slurpee into the garbage can. And I also was aware of others behind me. And with the period just about to begin, I made the decision that we had come this far, and so I reached into the garbage can and pulled out the container and the napkin, touching only the container, end quote. I have to admit I laughed out loud at the image of the kid with the disastrous, goopy Slurpee lurching toward the trash can and Special Agent Bokers giving him the stink eye. So, Bokers quickly used a leather-gloved hand to reach into the bin and remove the cardboard container with the paper napkin, which he never touched. He exited with these items and secured them in his car. Sergeant Caracostas photographed the concession area and the trash bin. They placed the food container and napkin into a paper evidence bag. Sergeant Caracostas returned to the Minneapolis Police Department and logged the food container and napkin into evidence. 
The paper napkin was subsequently submitted to the BCA laboratory for analysis. This directly from the police file, quote, On January 29, 2019, the BCA issued a laboratory report. The paper napkin, item 53, had a mixture of three or more individuals. A partial male DNA profile was consistent with the male DNA profile obtained from the sperm cell fraction of item 1417, the comforter from the murder scene, the sperm cell fraction of an item 24, the blue towel in the bathroom at the murder scene, and the non-sperm cell fraction of item 24, end quote. It was him. Based on the DNA evidence, the investigators obtained an arrest warrant after showing probable cause to believe that Jerry Westrom had murdered Jean Childs. On February 11th, they also obtained a search warrant for the footprints, palm prints, fingerprints, and a DNA sample from Westrom. The MPD Violent Criminal Apprehension Team was informed that their services were needed to make an arrest. Dressed in plain clothes and riding in unmarked vehicles, VCAT officers Fahey and Frost drove to the Marketplace Shopping Center at 110 Second Street in Waite Park, where Jerry's office was located, and they observed his 2017 Ford F-150 parked in the lot. They set up surveillance from their vehicle at 3.33 p.m. They were soon radioed by officers inside the mall that Westrom was leaving his office and walking out. Officer Fahey saw Westrom walking on the sidewalk toward his vehicle, and he and Frost got out of their cars and walked right up to him. Officer Holly Kegel also emerged from another car. While Fahey was walking up, he said, Jerry, and he replied, yes. Fahey held out his hand and shook Jerry's hand and informed him that he was with Minneapolis police and Westrom was under arrest and to put his hands behind his back. Westrom complied and was placed in the cuffs. Then they walked him over to the police car and searched him incident to arrest. They removed all his personal belongings from his pockets and placed them in an envelope. Westrom was then put in the front passenger seat, belted in, and double-locked in handcuffs. Westrom said nothing on his way back to Minneapolis City Hall, other than asking, so we're going to Minneapolis? He also confirmed his current address and phone number when asked, but he never asked the reason for the arrest. The drive of 90 minutes was silent. When they arrived, he was placed in interview room F, where they took the handcuffs off after a secondary search. Officer Fahey escorted Westrom to the bathroom and then brought him back into the interview room. They locked him in there, and Sergeant Caracostas was informed that it was all systems go. In the interview room, the handcuffs were removed, and Westrom was left alone for some time. Then Special Agent Bokers and Detective Caracostas entered the room and shook his hand. They said, do you have any idea why you're here? He said he had no idea. He sat with his arms crossed. No, he didn't want water or anything. They said they were looking into a case from many years ago, and your name has come up. They read him his Miranda warnings, and he agreed to talk. He was very calm throughout the conversation, not appearing particularly nervous or agitated, but maybe a little wary. They showed him two photographs of the Horn Towers in South Minneapolis. He said he didn't ever remember being there. They showed him a map of the surrounding areas, and he said he knew Lake Street and where the Kmart was, but he'd never been to the apartment complex. In 1993, did you date anyone in Minneapolis? No, he said. Did you have sex with any females in 1993 in Minneapolis? Not that I recall. Then they showed him a picture of the victim, Jean Childs, and told him her name. She lived in the Horn Towers and was found dead, they said. Do you think you ever would have had sex with her? I doubt it, he said. In 1993, did you visit prostitutes at all? Not as far as, uh, that's the year I met my wife. He kind of stammers here. 
1993, would you have been with a prostitute? No. Where were you living in 1993? Apple Valley. Could it have been Egan? Could have been, he says. Caracosta says, this woman, Jean Childs, was found dead in her apartment, and we think that you were inside that apartment. Would there have been any reason for that? Westrom says no. This was a long time ago. Are you sure about those answers? Yeah, he says. He denied any familiarity with the phone number found in Jean's client list under the name Jerry. Police believe now it might have been a work phone number. Then they showed him photographs of the bloody footprints and the comforter on the victim's bed. Would there be any reason your DNA was on the comforter? No. What size shoe do you wear? Size 10 and a half or 11. Any reason those would be your footprints? No. They then showed him photographs of the bathroom, showing the blue towel, blue washcloth, and red shirt, and the blood on the sink. They then informed him that his DNA was identified on the blue towel, the comforter, the washcloth, the red shirt, and the sink. He said he had no explanation for how his DNA could have gotten onto those items. Question, would it shock you to know that your DNA is there? Answer, yes. Question, were you a drinker back then? Answer, yes. Question, could there have been a time when you drank and don't remember things? Answer, it happened every once in a while. Then Karakostas asked Westrom if he recognized the investigators, but he said he didn't. They were wondering whether he remembered Special Agent Bokers from the lobby area of the Brown Deer Holiday Inn Express. They told him then that it was crucially important that he be fully honest with them. There has to be an explanation why scientific evidence placed him in the apartment. They said, the person involved in this is going to remember it, don't you think? Absolutely, Westrom said. When they asked him if he would consent to providing a DNA sample, he said he wanted to consult with his attorney. Then they told him that they actually had a search warrant to collect his DNA and they didn't need to ask his permission. He was informed that the warrant would be served the following morning, on February 12th. Before the investigators left the interview room, they asked if he wanted them to call anyone for him and he said to please call his wife, Elle. Karakostas and Bokers actually drove straight to Westrom's house to notify his wife, Elle, in person of the situation. This was a simple courtesy call. They informed her that her husband, Jerry, was being detained in the Hennepin County Jail because DNA evidence had linked him to a 1993 murder. Their notes reflect that Elle was visibly shocked and upset. Sergeant Karakostas gave her his business card and they left. The next day, Elle called the sergeant and said that she hadn't heard from her husband and was worried about him. Sergeant Karakostas told her that Westrom had access to a phone, and he was fine. Perhaps he was too embarrassed, nervous, or ashamed to call his wife. The next morning at 7 a.m., investigators and MPD crime lab personnel went to the Hennepin County Jail and executed the search warrant for a buckle swab and the other samples. Westrom cooperated and didn't ask any questions. The DNA sample was sent to the BCA crime lab for testing. They waited to charge him until they had the results. This is from the Statement of Probable Cause. Quote, Officers located the defendant and took him into custody. Investigators collected a known DNA sample from the defendant and submitted it to the BCA. The analysis revealed that a mixture of two or more individuals' DNA was found on the washcloth recovered from the toilet seat. Neither Jean Childs nor the defendant could be excluded from contributing to the mixture. However, 99.993% of the general population can be excluded as contributors. The defendant's DNA was found to be a match to the sperm cell fraction sample recovered from the comforter from the bed and the sperm cell fraction recovered from the blue towel hanging in the bathroom. 
The defendant's DNA was additionally found to be a match to the non-sperm cell fraction sample collected from the blue towel. Lastly, a mixture of two or more individuals' DNA was recovered in a non-sperm cell fraction sample collected from the comforter. The defendant cannot be excluded from being a contributor to the sample, yet 99.9999995% of the population can be, end quote. So in February 2019, Jerry Westrom was charged with murder in the second degree with intent not premeditated. Hennepin County Attorney Mike Freeman held a press conference announcing the arrest. He said the investigators were still working to develop the case against Westrom, but that the DNA evidence showed only the profiles of Westrom and Jean were in the blood samples taken from the crime scene. At the press conference, Jill Sanborn, special agent in charge of the FBI Minneapolis office, stated, quote, We all hope Jean's family can finally find peace as a result of this tenacious effort by officers and agents. This case underscores law enforcement's ability to use every tool at its disposal to crack a case, end quote. The Star Tribune caught up with Jean's mom, Betty Eichmann, after the arrest was announced. She said, quote, I'm so happy they have come out with this new DNA technology so it can help other cases to be solved. Jean's sister, Cindy, said, quote, This has been very hard on our family, of course, but I have a very determined mom who always kept in contact with Minneapolis police. She refused to let Jeannie be forgotten and wanted some type of closure as most parents would, end quote. Meanwhile, the media had a field day with the arrest of a so-called hockey dad for the decades-old slaying of Jean Childs. The bail hearing, Westrom's first public court appearance, was no doubt difficult for him. His wife and three adult children were in the courtroom, along with other supporters. According to reporters from the Star Tribune who were there, the 52-year-old Westrom said little, acknowledging his name and vital statistics in a quiet and shaky voice. But his defense attorney, Stephen Meshbesher, immediately challenged the evidence against his client. He apparently hoped to convince the judge that his client was an upstanding citizen, the case was weak, and he was wrongly accused. He said to the court about the victim, Jean, that, quote, whoever had sex with her, and that's probably a lot of men, isn't necessarily the person who committed the murder, end quote. Well, the judge, Martha Dimmick, indicated that she was not going to permit a defense based on victim blaming. She responded, quote, I am not going to condemn or consider that she had multiple partners. And she pointed out that female sex workers were often victims of exploitation and trafficking. Still, Meshbesher pushed for bail for his client, telling the court that Westrom had lived in Minnesota his entire life and wasn't a flight risk. In the end, Judge Dimmick agreed. Westrom was awarded bail in the amount of $500,000. He posted bond the next day and was released with various conditions. Months later, Meshbesher filed a second motion to have the bail reduced further, informing the court that Westrom had been fired from his job after being arrested and had to sell off all his assets to pay for his defense and the PI the defense team hired, a former MPD officer. Westrom, Meshbesher said, was innocent and was using all his resources to fight the charges. Accordingly, in March 2020, Westrom's bail was reduced to $250,000. Meanwhile, the state worked to build their case against him. While Westrom was out on bond in 2019, he petitioned the court for permission to travel to out-of-state graduation ceremonies for two of his nieces. The state argued that he was a flight risk and the request should be denied. This time, Judge Dimmick sided with the prosecution. 
She told Westrom that this was a serious case and he should be focused on his own situation rather than family celebrations. And she was right, because it was about to get even more serious. The initial 2019 complaint charged Westrom with murder in the second degree with intent, not premeditated. The maximum sentence for this offense was 40 years. But in 2020, the prosecution submitted the case to a grand jury, which indicted him for first-degree murder. First-degree murder in Minnesota requires a showing of not only intent to kill, but premeditation. Why didn't they bring these more serious charges in the first place? Well, you'll recall that after his initial arrest, Jerry Westrom was required to submit his footprints, which were analyzed by experts. This was a very long and convoluted process, but in the end, the experts determined that at least two of the bloody footprints photographed on Jean's floor came from Jerry Westrom. This new evidence placing not just his DNA but his person at the scene was enough to elevate the charges to murder one. A new warrant was issued for Westrom's arrest. He was still out on bail for the second-degree murder charge, but the first-degree murder charge was a new and substantially more serious allegation that he had to answer for. Jerry Westrom turned himself in on June 29, 2020. On June 30th, in a hearing before Judge Tamara Garcia, Westrom pleaded not guilty. Judge Garcia set Westrom's bail at a hefty $2 million. The defense again moved for reduced bail. They provided the court with copies of over 20 letters addressed to Judge Martha Dimmick in support of Jerry Westrom, in a bid to allow him to be released on the already posted bond. As Meshbesher told the court, quote, there is no more money. It would be punitive in nature, end quote. One of the letters was from Westrom's wife, Elle. She told the judge the family was blindsided by her husband's arrest and they had to sell the 100-year-old family farm, which they had purchased from Westrom's parents, in order to pay for his bail and defense, along with contributing their savings and selling off personal items. Westrom had been fired from his job as a commodity broker and crop insurance agent after he was arrested, although he'd managed to get it back. L tried to impress upon the judge what a charitable and giving man her husband was, saying, I've seen him stop to help others in distress on the side of the road, raise funds to buy AEDs for the community, care for his elderly parents and my disabled brother, volunteer for church and community events, among many other things. I can assure you that I do not believe that he is dangerous, nor does he pose any risk of harm to society. Another letter in support was from Westrom's son, S., who talked about what a great father Westrom was and how he's always been involved in community and civic groups. S. pointed out that if Westrom presented a flight risk, he would have already split town since being released on bail in February of 2019. Another letter was from Westrom's sister, N., who talked about how Westrom was the primary caregiver for their elderly parents and had lifelong ties to Minnesota. His son, J.R., wrote about the stress and anxiety that came with the relentless media coverage of his father's case. Other letters were from childhood friends, college classmates, Rotary Club members, fellow churchgoers, co-workers, other hockey parents. They all said they did not believe Westrom to be capable of the violent crime he was accused of. Many said he was a caring, compassionate person who was never even known to raise his voice. I guess you never truly know anyone. In opposition, the state informed the court of some of Westrom's prior convictions and said, it is not beyond the realm of possibility that the defendant has two different personas, one that he is able to portray to his family and friends in his community, and one that does involve the criminal conduct to include the evisceration and the disembowelment of Gene Childs back in 1993, end quote. 
The judge refused to lower Westrom's bond. He could not raise the funds and had no choice but to be incarcerated while awaiting trial. The court conducted a fry mac hearing on July 13, 2021. This was all to do with the footprint evidence. The court heard testimony from Mark Ulrich, the City of Minneapolis Crime Lab Unit latent print examiner, whose team had attributed the crime scene footprints to Westrom. He explained how complex footprint identification was. Quote, footprints are more complex because a lot of times it's ridge flow with no patterns unless you get up into the upper regions of the ball of the foot where you have some patterns. But otherwise, in a lot of areas, you just have ridge flow with endings and bifurcations and a large footprint. You have large area of friction ridge skin. So you're dealing with a much larger area than sometimes the fingers, end quote. Ulrich testified that he and his team had affirmatively identified two of the four footprints found at the scene as the right and left feet of Jerry Westrom. Unfortunately for the defense, an expert they had retained, Dr. Alicia Wilcox, agreed that one of the bloody footprints was Westrom's. The other she found inconclusive. The reason for the hearing was the defense wanted to introduce an expert to oppose the state's expert forensic podiatry findings that the bloody footprints belonged to Westrom. For obvious reasons, they wanted this evidence out at trial. They sought to introduce alternative methods of footprint analysis based on the methodologies used by their own expert, Dr. Michael Nirenberg. He was going to testify that using a different identification methodology than the two accepted methods of footprint analysis, the overlay method and the linear measurement method, he believed the footprints were not a match to Westrom. There was a lot of tedious discussion of blind review and accepted standards and novel techniques. In the end, the judge sided with the state. The defense expert was prohibited from testifying at trial about his alternative methods and contrary conclusions. The footprints were in. But that wasn't the end of the pretrial wrangling. And the next bit is very relevant to the field of forensic genealogy and recent developments. Westrom's attorneys filed a two-pronged motion to suppress the DNA evidence. First, they argued that he had a privacy interest in his DNA profile in his discarded napkin. We've seen this numerous times. All my listeners know by now about the abandonment doctrine and how the Supreme Court has time and again upheld the concept that an individual can have no expectation of privacy in items discarded in public. Nonetheless, the defense elaborated that their position was that the extraction of Westrom's DNA profile from the napkin was an illegal search and seizure. Second, they argued that Westrom had a privacy interest in the genetic material he shared with his relative Williams that was contained in the DNA database used by the genealogist, and that this shared genetic material was uploaded by Mr. Williams to MyHeritage without Westrom's knowledge and consent. Okay, so everyone can understand all this. I will remind listeners that the only genealogy databases that are open to law enforcement searching are Family Tree DNA and GEDmatch. However, in this case, law enforcement created an anonymous DNA profile with the unknown suspect's DNA and uploaded it to MyHeritage, another genealogy database with millions of users. This was where they found the match to Mr. Williams, and then used his family tree identification, which was publicly available on Ancestry, to deduce the identity of Jerry Westrom. All of this came out in the course of pretrial motions. This directly from one of the defense briefs, quote, my heritage strictly prohibits law enforcement from using its DNA services without a valid court order or permission. This is specifically stated in My Heritage's terms of service. Therefore, 
Mr. Williams could not have reasonably expected that his private genetic information would be searched by police, end quote. Specifically, at the time that this search of MyHeritage was conducted, their terms of service stated, quote, Using the DNA services for law enforcement purposes, forensic examinations, criminal investigations, and or similar purposes without a court order and without prior explicit written permission from MyHeritage is strictly prohibited. It is our policy to resist law enforcement inquiries to protect the privacy of our customers, end quote. The defense brief went on to say, quote, MyHeritage's terms of service indicate that the website's users do not consent to law enforcement searching their DNA. Therefore, law enforcement did not have the voluntary consent of Mr. Williams or Mr. Westrom before searching their shared genetic information, end quote. The defense concluded that, quote, since law enforcement did not have a warrant or consent from Jerry Westrom or Mr. Williams, their search of the MyHeritage database was illegal, end quote. Okay, I will note that this is not correct. While it was in violation of the terms of service and an arguable ethical violation, it was not an illegal activity. The terms of service are essentially an honor system, and this is exactly what the state argued. They acknowledged the terms of service violation, but equated the uploading of the DNA profile of the suspect to MyHeritage under the name Steve Bell to other undercover investigative tactics long endorsed by the courts. This from the state's brief, quote, Defendant emphasizes that law enforcement is not allowed to use my heritage. Although it is in the terms of service, defendant does not cite any authority prohibiting law enforcement from doing so. Rather, there is case law that allows for the exact use of undercover work used by law enforcement in the current case, end quote. The state's memo then cited multiple cases upholding the right of law enforcement to use covert operations, undercover methodologies, and ruses to explore previously unknowable private information in the course of investigating criminal activity. The precedents basically held that the ends justify the means. The state concluded, quote, Therefore, Law enforcement's use of an undercover profile on a website that is available to the public to find information that was voluntarily made public by defendant's relative was not an illegal search, end quote. I will point out that the state's position was backed by the FBI, whose position has been reported as being that since everyday citizens could upload DNA profiles to MyHeritage and see the matches that resulted, there was no reason that law enforcement should not be able to do the same. This is from a recent article in The Intercept that created some waves, to say the least. Quote, The break that led to D'Angelo came after genealogist Barbara Ray Venter uploaded DNA from the double murder to my heritage, according to the Los Angeles Times. Ray Venter told the Times that she didn't notify the company about what she was doing, but that her actions were approved by Steve Kramer, the FBI's Los Angeles Division Counsel at the time. In his opinion, law enforcement is entitled to go where the public goes, Ray Venter told the paper. Well, I'm not touching any of this with a 10-foot pole, except to say that pretty much everyone agrees that the field of forensic genealogy is in need of some agreed-upon regulations to avoid things like this occurring. It is my understanding that my heritage is working to shut down further violations of its terms of service. Also, I gave Barbara Ray Venter an opportunity to speak with me about this case, and she did not respond to my request. Anyway, back to the Westrom case. The state noted that based on the fact that Westrom's relative, Mr. Williams, used my heritage, quote, 
it's most likely that Westrom's DNA relative actually intended his DNA to be made available for others to match with him, end quote. The whole reason Williams likely selected MyHeritage was precisely because of its ease and simplicity of uploading and searching for relatives. He wanted to be found. The judge agreed in her ruling, saying, quote, The identifying information gleaned from MyHeritage is not information society deems private for purposes of the Fourth Amendment. The function of the website itself illustrates this. MyHeritage charges individuals a fee to analyze their DNA and host the subsequent data set on their website so that the public can compare their genetic identifying information to find familial matches. The user, this was the DNA relative Williams, voluntarily uploaded his DNA profile for the express purpose of being freely compared to millions of other DNA profiles, end quote. The court addressed this in its ruling, saying, quote, Accessing this freely available identification information is not a search for constitutional purposes. Law enforcement's possible violation of MyHeritage's service agreement may subject them to action from MyHeritage, but the court does not see any reason why this violation of private company terms would implicate constitutional protections, end quote. The defendant had no standing to contest the uploading of DNA by his relative, Williams. Judge Jimmick's ruling, quote, The information gained from the DNA analysis was used to compare DNA samples and reveal identity matches. If this is an intrusion at all for the purposes of the Fourth Amendment, it is extremely slight. In comparison, there is significant and legitimate governmental interest in exonerating the innocent, identifying offenders of past crimes, and bringing closure for victims of unsolved crimes, citing case law. Given the state of this case and other cold cases, the sort of DNA analysis performed here may be the only method available to law enforcement to solve these crimes. These interests strongly outweigh the defendant's privacy interest in his identifying information contained in his abandoned DNA. It also strongly outweighs any privacy interest he may have in the genetic information he shares with his family any interest he may have in having his identifying information compared to public DNA databases for identification purposes, end quote. Crucially, the court concluded that any privacy interests Westrom had were outweighed by the, quote, substantial government interests discussed. So none of the searches cited by Westrom violated his constitutional rights. All the defense motions to suppress the DNA evidence were denied by order of Judge Dimmick on October 4, 2021. It would all come in at trial. Even though they lost that one, the defense had more cards up its sleeve. They moved for permission to present alternative perpetrator evidence. We've seen this a number of times, and the judge usually denies the motion because the introduction of an alternative perpetrator can't just be based on allegations. There are certain standards that have to be met. Here, quote, Alternative perpetrator evidence is admissible only if the defendant makes a threshold showing that the evidence that the defendant seeks to admit has an inherent tendency to connect the alternative perpetrator to the commission of the charged crime, end quote. In this case, the defense sought to produce evidence about five other guys, suggesting that any one of them could have killed Gene instead of Westrom. We've heard all their names before. They were Greg V., fatal attraction guy, Arthur Gray, Gene's boyfriend, John E., the guy whose blood was in the stairwell, James Carlton, who had killed Jody Dover in 1994, and Timothy Kay, who had threatened some people on the 21st floor of the Horn Towers with a knife. 
The state was ready for all this. Both they and the defense had sent investigators to talk to each and every one of these guys in preparation for trial, except Arthur, who was dead. Let's talk about them and why the defense hoped to point the finger at them. Timothy Kay had racked up a criminal record for first-degree and third-degree criminal sexual assault, as well as criminal charges for fifth-degree assault and disorderly conduct. But there was still nothing connecting him to Gene's murder. John E.'s blood was in the stairwell where Gene's blood was, and he'd admitted to being in the building once. But no evidence of him ever being in the apartment was found, and his footprints specifically did not match up with those left near Gene's body. Greg V. was named as being someone who was upset with Gene and may have had an appointment with her on the day she died. He also looked like the guy that Bonnie R. had seen going up in the elevator. But of all the male DNA found in the apartment, none was Greg's, and his footprints didn't match. Further, he denied killing Jean and had an alibi. James Carlton was a decent suspect because of the very similar murder he committed a year after Jean's, and the fact that DNA that did not rule him out as a contributor was found in the apartment. State investigators visited him in prison, and he told them that since he was serving a life sentence, he would have no problem copying to Jean's murder if he'd done it, but he hadn't. He said, I swear on my kids' lives. If I did it, I'd tell you, okay? Carlton was brought in to testify at the pretrial hearing. This is from a state motion. Quote, Mr. Carlton has been interviewed and denied any involvement in the instant offense. Given the victim's trade and the fact the apartment was used for meetings, it is of no surprise that multiple individuals' DNA may be found on the comforter. Mr. Carlton was also connected to the scene through DNA, but not to the crime. The last alternative perpetrator the defense sought to introduce was Arthur Gray, who had died in 2017. He lived in the apartment, so his DNA was everywhere, but his hairs were found on Jean's hand. He was known to be verbally abusive. Meshbesher's motion reads, quote, It's plausible for a jury to believe that a victim of a violent murder may attempt to grab the perpetrator in self-defense, resulting in their hair being found in the victim's hands. The judge decided to permit one alternative perpetrator to come in. I was kind of surprised that it wasn't James Carlton, with him having committed a similar crime and all. But instead, the judge permitted the defense to place the blame on the dead guy, Arthur Gray. The others were all thrown out. On March 11, 2020, the state made a plea deal offer to Westrom. They offered to allow him to plead guilty to murder in the second degree and agree to a sentencing range of 261 to 306 months. The offer was declined. Right up until the moment of trial, even after the jury was impaneled, the state reiterated that it was willing to discuss a plea deal, but the defendant rejected it. Westrom's trial commenced on the 16th of August, 2022, after voir dire in the courtroom of Judge Juan Hoyos. The jury comprised 12 seated jurors and three alternates, six women and nine men. The prosecutors were Darren Borg and Mike Radmer. In Radmer's opening statement, he focused on the physical evidence. In short, they had Jerry Westrom's DNA in the form of semen commingled with Jean's blood all over several items from the apartment. They also had his touch DNA on several items mixed in with Jean's blood. This from the pretrial hearing, quote, Interestingly enough, we find Mr. Westrom more than just about anybody on the comforter, the blood-soaked comforter, on a blue towel hanging in the bathroom, on a blue washcloth also in the bathroom, on bloodstains in the bathroom, and on a red t-shirt, end quote. And as if that were not enough, the footprints etched in fresh blood, identified as Westrom's by a number of experts, placed him squarely at the bloody scene. The defense attorneys were Stephen Meshbesher and Andrew Tyler. They did their best to raise reasonable doubt. 
In his opener, Meshbesher told the jury that since Jean was a sex worker, DNA in the form of sperm was not necessarily related to the crime. DNA from three other men had also been found on the comforter. And the DNA from a still unidentified male was found on Jean's purple underwear, found in her jeans next to her body. Yet no DNA from Westrom was found anywhere on Jean's body. Meshbesher also claimed the footprint evidence was unreliable. He cited the fact that the footprint examiner, Mark Ulrich, had admitted that the friction ridge comparison was particularly difficult in this case. Meshbesher emphasized that the apartment door was unlocked when it was found and subsequently, and multiple waves of security people went in and out, a mop bucket was used, and police didn't investigate a trash chute that potentially had blood on it. He said, quote, There is not a single eyewitness who identifies Jerry Westrom at 3121 Pillsbury Avenue South. There is not a single eyewitness who identifies Jerry Westrom as ever being with Jeannie Childs. There are no fingerprints linking Jerry Westrom to the apartment. There are no records of any connection between Jerry Westrom and Jeannie Childs. No murder weapon was ever found. End quote. Well, all of this was true. It was now up to the state to try to meet its burden of proof. They called a number of the original first responders to testify that the crime scene was preserved intact and everyone had been careful not to disturb the evidence. David Palmer testified extensively about the bloody crime scene. On cross, he said he'd never personally spoke to any of Arthur Gray's alibi witnesses. Arthur Gray was the one alternative perpetrator the defense was allowed to talk about, and they did so throughout the trial, even though the state introduced Maurice Hampton, who confirmed that he and Arthur were out of town at the motorcycle rally all weekend. Dr. Andrew Baker, the Hennepin County Medical Examiner, testified that he counted 65 sharp force injuries on Jean's body. The prosecution presented photos of them all to the jury, with Dr. Baker narrating to describe the injuries and what had likely caused them. On cross, the defense got Dr. Baker to admit that he had no way of knowing what weapon was used, whether there was more than one assailant, whether it was a man or a woman, whether they were right-hand dominant, and so on. He also acknowledged that no samples were collected from under Jean's nails. The state introduced the DNA analysts who had done the work over the years. And Bart Epstein, the CSI for the BCA, told the jury all about the bloodstains in the stairwell and about collecting the bloody footprints and all the physical evidence he bagged at the scene. And he talked about the patterns in the blood spatter within the apartment and how he could tell that Jean was upright in certain places in the bedroom and bathroom when she was repeatedly stabbed. Here's an excerpt, which I'm including because it tends to illustrate how the murder actually went down. Quote, Jean Childs was at least some part of the attack took place in, in front of the doorway to the bathroom. There was impact stains there to indicate that some attack took place there. Secondly, she was bleeding and moving about in the bathroom and making contact with items in that room. Thirdly, at some time she was on top of the bed, bleeding profusely to produce the amount of blood that was found there. And fourth, and probably most significant, is the finding of imprints in blood from someone had stepped in her blood after she was bleeding and put down bloody footprints that could be identified as whose footprints made those and resulted in those footprints standing in front of the window in the bedroom, end quote. On cross, Epstein was asked about the mopping done by the caretaker, Edward W., and how many people had been in and out of the apartment. He admitted that several items collected were never tested, to his knowledge, like the leather jacket and the shoes and the taps in the sink and the shower. Meshbesher asked if he was aware that evidence from Jean Child's case file was found misfiled in another unrelated case file. Epstein wasn't, but he said that didn't mean the evidence was compromised. 
I've already talked about how complex the footprint analysis was. Mark Ulrich testified about how, starting in 2015, he viewed close-up photographs and the lifts of the bloody footprints taken at the scene, analyzing the ridge flow using the standard ACE-V methodology, which may be ACE-Fies, I apologize, which looks at the friction ridge impressions. He collected known footprint impressions from Jerry Westrom in February of 2019. When he compared impression E2 to Jerry Westrom's left foot, he concluded that it matched. Quote, I reached that conclusion that there was such similar overwhelming correspondence of the features and the friction ridge detail of the unknown to the known that I would not expect that to be in any other source, end quote. In other words, they were the same. Blind verification required that Ulrich's determination was reviewed without any external information, including the name of the defendant, by another examiner, Steve Langness, who agreed with Ulrich's assessment. A third examiner named Dustin Anderson also reached the same conclusion. Dr. Alicia Wilcox agreed that Westrom's left foot matched image E2. Ulrich's team found that another of the footprint images matched Westrom's white foot. Meshmesher did his best to poke holes in the footprint identification verification methods, but it was very complicated, and I suspect that most of what the jury heard was a very sciencey and authoritative state's expert stating that they had a match to both of Westrom's feet. Andrea Fea, the forensic scientist in the biology and DNA section of the BCA, did the testing on the hot dog napkin snagged from Jerry Westrom. Her January 2019 report said that Westrom's DNA from the napkin was a match to the various items found in the apartment. Ms. Fea also tested Westrom's known buckle swab and was able to, to develop a DNA profile from it and compare it to the evidentiary items. Her report said, quote, from the comforter, item 1417, sperm cell fraction, a single source male DNA profile was obtained and matches Jerry Arnold Westrom. This DNA profile would not be expected to occur more than once among all unrelated individuals in the world's population, end quote. The same was true for the sperm cell fraction on the blue towel. As for the testing of the red t-shirt and blue washcloth, a blood-stained area on each was tested, quote, a major mixture of two or more individuals was obtained. A mixture of DNA from Jerry Westrom and Jean Childs cannot be excluded as a source of DNA obtained from this major mixture. It is estimated that 99.993% of the general population can be excluded from being a possible contributor to this mixture. As for a blood stain on the red T-shirt, a Y chromosomal test detected a major DNA profile that matched Jerry Westrom. This was also true for a scraping of blood from the sink. On direct examination of the DNA analyst, the state asked, quote, Is this sort of a synopsis of the DNA evidence in this case linking items from the apartment to Mr. Westrom? Yes. Question, specifically, that's cuttings from the comforter? Correct. Cuttings from the blue towel? Yes. Cuttings from the blue washcloth? Yes. Cuttings from the red t-shirt? Yes. And the blood scrapings from the sink? Correct. On cross... The defense elicited that there was no way to know when the DNA was deposited and that secondary transfer was theoretically possible. But the fact that Westrom's DNA was found within drops and smears of Jean's blood was a very, very high hurdle for the defense. Special Agent Chris Bokers, who now works for the U.S. Attorney's Office in Minneapolis, testified about reopening the investigation in 2015 with Chris Caracostas. He testified about the genealogy, the napkin, and how they got to Westrom. 
Here, the state played Jerry Westrom's recorded interview in which he denied knowing Gene or ever having been in Horn Towers. On cross, Meshbesher managed to elicit a lot of I-don't-knows from Bokers about how many people had entered the apartment, whether the door was left unattended, how much mopping was done, and so on. Bokers admitted that a lot of people lived in the building who may never have been canvassed. He also admitted that the hairs in or on Gene's left hand were Arthur's. He also admitted under cross that the one palm print found on the railing in the stairwell belonged to Arthur Gray, and that Jerry Westrom has no known history of violence. Several days into the trial, the lead prosecuting attorney, Radmer, had to go in for unanticipated surgery. Darren Borg took over, and as he said, he had never actually read the BCA reports. That wasn't his part of the trial. He had to basically wing it. He told the court he had an hour and a half to learn 30 years' worth of DNA work so he could handle all the direct examinations of the three DNA witnesses. He did a great job even on the fly, making sure the evidence was presented clearly and concisely to the jury. After Boker's testimony concluded, the state rested its case. Then the defense made a motion for a judgment of acquittal. The judge stated, quote, I do agree with defense that this is a circumstantial case, but given the evidence presented, there does appear to be sufficient evidence for the jury to consider inferences that could lead them also to consider fairly whether the state can prove their case by proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Therefore, at this time, the court respectfully denies the defense's motion for a judgment of acquittal. The defense called a couple of witnesses to try to undermine the state's case. One of these was Bonnie R., who testified about seeing Jean go up the elevator on the afternoon she was killed with a blonde man in a trench coat. Jerry Westrom is decidedly not blonde. On cross, Borg got her to admit that she didn't even live in the building. She certainly didn't know every resident, and she had no idea whether this man and Jean got off the elevator on the same floor. Then the defense called Barbara Moe, MPD Detective Sergeant, she testified about testing some of the evidence and learning that the hairs in Jean's left hand belonged to Arthur Gray. The defense rested. Westrom did not take the stand. In his closing arguments, Prosecutor Darren Borg told the jury that the state had met its burden to prove murder with intent. He said that Jean was stabbed 65 times in more than one room. Defensive wounds on her hands showed that she fought for her life. He talked about Westrom's DNA, how it was found all over the bedroom and bathroom, and how it could only have gotten there by being deposited by the defendant. Borg reminded the jury that, quote, In order for Mr. Westrom's semen to have been magically transported into this apartment, somebody or something would have had to have had Mr. Westrom's wet semen on them or on the object. And then, by sheer coincidence, this person who happened to have Mr. Westrom's wet semen on them or on an object they were carrying, that person would have, by sheer coincidence, have to have stumbled into the apartment where a murder had just occurred and then deposited the semen on the comforter, all the while leaving no trace of themselves. And as coincidence would then have it, this phantom person who deposited or transferred Mr. Westrom's wet semen onto the comforter also happened to transfer Mr. Westrom's DNA onto the bloody towel, the bloody washcloth, the bloody red shirt, and the area of blood in the sink. Now, the defense might say, well, wait a second, Mr. Westrom might have been there on a prior occasion for some other purpose, and that's how his DNA got on those towels, and it was there before the blood was let, and it was on the comforter, and the semen was on the comforter from some prior occasion. No, 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 no. They don't get to make that argument because the defendant told the police he was never there, never had sex with her, doesn't know her. 
So if they start arguing to you that his DNA and semen was there through some prior act of his unrelated to the murder, no, 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 no. This is inconsistent with his statement. Borg next turned to the state's coup de grace, the bloody footprints. Quote, how do you get a bloody footprint? You step in liquid blood and you put your foot down, Borg said. He pointed out that the blood had to be liquid, fresh, in order for this to occur. He said, quote, in terms of proving that the defendant was the one who committed the murder, we have his footprint, time stamped in blood, liquid blood, and we have his DNA on all of these bloody items. His footprints are mere inches away from Jeannie Child's lifeless, hacked, nearly disemboweled body. His footprints are in blood because he killed her. He was there when the blood was being let. This is no coincidence, ladies and gentlemen. The forensic evidence links the defendant to the crime scene at the time the crime was committed. End quote. Finally, Darren Borg emphasized that the state had satisfied all of the elements of first-degree murder. They had shown Jean was murdered by the defendant with intent and premeditation. The prolonged multi-room nature of the attack showed premeditation, and the 65 stab wounds surely showed intent. While Meshmesher had an uphill battle to convince the jury that the state had not proven Westrom's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, he pointed out various inconsistencies and flaws in witness statements and missing evidence. Apparently, the autopsy photos of the genes and genes' hands with the hairs on them were missing. Only two of the hairs were tested, which means that six hairs weren't. The responding officers did not see water right inside the door of the apartment, yet it had spilled into the hallway. That showed that someone mopped up the apartment, potentially destroying evidence. A knife in the kitchen drying rack was not collected. Meshbesher reminded the jury of the blonde man running from the stairwell who was clearly not his client. And he pointed to the entire constellation of DNA evidence found in apartment 2104 that did not match Jerry Westrom, including on the comforter and Jean's underwear. Further, the photos of the footprints contained voids, and even the experts said the ridge flow was difficult to decipher. They didn't all agree as to whether they matched Jerry Westrom. The jury commenced deliberations on Thursday afternoon, August 25th. After two hours, they sent a note to the judge asking for clarification on the two different charges before them, murder in the first degree and murder in the second degree. Murder in the first had the additional element of premeditation. The jury asked, if we find the defendant guilty of first-degree murder, do we also fill out a form for second-degree murder? The answer was yes. Well, that afternoon, the jury reached its verdict. They found the defendant, Jerry Arnold Westrom, guilty of, one, the premeditated first-degree murder for the death of Jean Childs, and two, the second-degree murder of Jean Childs. Westrom was led out in handcuffs, his fate to be determined later. Jean's mother said to the assembled media, quote, I know that the law is finally going to take care of him for what he did, and I hope he can sleep at night. Jeannie was a wonderful person, even though she had problems. She had a big heart. Hennepin County Attorney Mike Freeman issued a statement after the verdict, saying of Jean's family, quote, They have had to live without justice for her brutal murder for nearly three decades. Today's guilty verdicts show that we will pursue convictions for serious crimes, even if it takes years to gather the evidence. End quote. He hoped that it would bring Jean's family a measure of peace. Some members of the jury spoke to the media after the trial. I always find this interesting. Jury foreperson Derek Freidenberg said, quote, Even the most charitable reading is that one of the footprints was for sure his. End quote. He said the jury was swayed by the footprint, the DNA, and Westrom's interview denying it all, since that was the only time they heard from him and he was clearly lying. 
Brandenburg told CBS News that he really felt for Gene's family. Quote, that's why it matters that this came up 30 years later. It was so brutal. It's so graphic. You just can't let this go, Freidenberg said. Two alternate jurors also spoke with WCCO. They both said they would have found Westrom guilty. One of them, Dean Zimmerman, said, quote, I think it's very clear that he was there, made the footprints at the time she was murdered, and it's just too hard to argue with that, end quote. Westrom's sentencing took place on September 9, 2022, at 8.30 a.m., Before a sentence was pronounced, some of Jean's family members were permitted to deliver victims' impact statements to the court. Jean's mom, Betty, talked about her last phone conversation with her daughter on Saturday, June 12, 1993. Of course, she didn't know then it was the last time she would ever speak with Jean. Quote, I've waited so many years to have this end, and it's put my life through so much hell, she told the court. Melissa B., Jean's niece, also spoke. She said of Jean, quote, Regardless of all that she had been through in this life, she did not let the world make her bitter. She had a smile that could light up a room, a laugh that, no matter what mood you were in, would curl the corners of your mouth, and before you knew it, you were smiling. She made a huge impact on my life. She made the world a better place. She was brave, silly, loving, kind. On June 13, 1993, my parents sat me down and had to tell me something that changed my life forever. It flipped my world right on its head. From looking at the world with my freshly nine-year-old eyes with hope and, you know, thinking that it was a good place out there, the world suddenly was a darker, scarier place. I remember the knot in my stomach, crying so hard I couldn't breathe. And I remember her laying in her casket and me begging her to please just wake up. The effects something like this creates can be vicious. They affect you for an entire lifetime. To lose someone you love is a profound experience. Her loss has left us all with a gaping hole in our lives that can't be filled. A statement from Cindy Kay, Jean's sister, was read aloud by a victim's advocate. Quote, I'm so sorry we never got the chance to say goodbye. You were my big sister and my only sister. For those of us you left behind, we miss you so, so much. You were the one I knew no matter what would be there to back me, cry with me, hug me, or just an ear to listen to with no judgment. Your life was taken away too soon by a callous decision from one person. Because of this decision, my children grew up, never knowing their Auntie Jeannie. Your death has forever changed our lives. The life we had before no longer exists. The last and final thing I would like to talk about is the sadness I have been carrying around for the Westrom family. I cannot help but feel so, so bad for his wife and children. They were all innocent in this tragic mess. Think about how his wife must be feeling— as well as the devastation his children are going through. I want them to know this, too, really breaks my heart. His daughter will never have her father to walk her down the aisle on her wedding day. Their children will never get the chance to know their grandfather. It's important that any way you look at this tragic ending to my sister's life, you remember that no one wins. Thank you. At the conclusion of the victim's impact statements, Darren Borg said, Your Honor, at this time, the state moves for sentencing. Count one is mandatory life. The parties had discussed yesterday what the appropriate penalty was back for murder in the first degree in 1993, and I think it's agreed by all that it is a life sentence with no possibility for parole until 30 years of service. So the state asked that the defendant be sentenced on count one. It's the state's belief that count two would merge for purposes of sentencing, so no sentence would need to be pronounced on count two. With that, Your Honor, we move for sentencing. Meshbesher went on about how they planned to appeal because they'd been denied the ability to admit their footprint expert and the four alternative suspects besides Arthur Gray. Then the judge spoke. He said, 
Mr. Westrom, sir, anything you want to say before I impose sentence in this matter? Westrom said, not at this time, Your Honor. The court. All right. Well, I've seen two families throughout this trial that are experiencing a lot of pain and anguish. And I've seen your family, Mr. Westrom. They have been here every day supporting you. And it seems like you have led a very positive life the past 29 years. And your wife and family have been here. And you clearly have a lot of support and they love you. And it tells me that you touch their lives in a very positive way. And I'm well aware that this case doesn't just affect your life, but theirs too. However, you took Jeannie Child's opportunity of a life. She was not able to continue to be with her family, to provide her love to her family, and she was deprived of receiving that love. You took that away from her years ago, and now the law demands that you face our state's most serious consequence. And at this time, the court is going to impose the following sentence. You, Jerry Arnold Westrom, having been convicted by a Hennepin County jury of first-degree murder as to count one, you're hereby committed to the Commissioner of Corrections for a term of life pursuant to Minnesota Statute 609.185, the statute in effect in June of 1993. You're required to serve at least a minimum sentence of 30 years. As to count two, the court will not impose a sentence and that matter will merge with the sentence just imposed on count one. So Jerry Westrom will serve 30 years before he's eligible for parole. By then, he'll be in his 80s. His attorney has already filed his appeal of right to the Minnesota Supreme Court, permitted in all first-degree murder convictions. After Westrom was sentenced, Betty Eichmann addressed the media outside the courthouse. She said, quote, My heart's been broken for 29 years. I miss her. She's supposed to be there for me when I get old, and she won't be. So all I gotta say is, honey, justice has been served. So who is Jerry Arnold Westrom? He was born on May 16, 1966, to parents Norlin Arnold Westrom and Emmerella Dorothy Westrom. He lived in Minnesota his whole life, growing up in the Elbow Lake area, about 30 miles northwest of Alexandria. He graduated from the University of Minnesota in 1989 with a bachelor's degree in agricultural business, and then moved to Minneapolis. According to his wife, Elle, the two met at the wedding of mutual friends in May of 1993, and they married a year later. When they met, Westrom was living in Minneapolis and taking classes to get his EMT certification. So Westrom and his soon-to-be wife were in a brand-new month-old relationship when, at age 27, he killed Jean Childs. Westrom moved away from the city six months later and went on to have three kids with Elle and become an organic farmer. He and Elle settled in Isanti, according to the Star Tribune. He, quote, led a fairly high-profile life with business ventures and support of youth athletics, raising his now-grown children in organized hockey, end quote. But it wasn't all as innocent as it appeared. One woman who spoke to the Star Tribune said she worked for Western when she was 16. Quote, Jerry was loved by the town when I was growing up. He did the pancake breakfast for some of the high school sports, and he employed people at at least four businesses that I can recall, end quote. But she herself worked at Westrom's gas station when she was 16 and said that he employed mostly teenage girls and would sometimes supply them with alcohol. The woman said she last saw Westrom a little more than 10 years earlier when he showed up at her friend's house and made inappropriate comments about her body. When police caught up with Westrom for the murder of Jean Childs, he was 52 years old, 5'10", with brown eyes and brown hair. He and his wife were living on Bayshore Circle in Isanti, and he was working as a commodities broker at Diversified Crop Insurance Company. 
No one had any idea that in his past he had killed someone. But again, as I said, everything was not as innocent as it seemed. Jean was not the only sex worker Westrom patronized. Let's talk about what else Westrom did. I'm sure to his mortification, Westrom's mugshot was one of dozens that was published on a front-page 2016 expose in the St. Cloud Times about a prostitution task force that was established in 2013 to crack down on the area's sex trade and put a stop to sex trafficking. Investigators in the area had learned of more than 200 active sex workers in St. Cloud and connected the city's underground sex-for-money industry to violent crime and the drug trade. The Central Minnesota Sex Trafficking Task Force set up sting operations that nailed 104 men who solicited sex workers in Stearns County in three years. The task force placed ads on Backpage.com, posing as women named Callie, Alexis, Katie, and Carmen. One of the men who responded to one such ad and showed up to a prearranged Kelly Inn motel room for a supposed meeting with a sex worker was Jerry Westrom. Here are the details from a police affidavit, quote, On July 17, 2015, the Central Minnesota Sex Trafficking Task Force created and posted an advertisement on www.backpage.com in the escorts section from a fictional person named Katie, age 20, with the caption, Back into area, best choice, certified bad girl, come explore my special. The body of the advertisement read, Does your wife or girlfriend have a headache? If so, I have the cure. Whatever the problem, I will solve it. I'm five foot two inches, 115 pounds, redhead, and curves in all the right places. Don't ask for pics. I'm professional and discreet, and I won't disappoint you. Text me to let the fun begin. Ask for my two girls special. Nice. Provocative pictures of Katie were also posted in the advertisement along with a phone number. Based on law enforcement officers' training and experience, the escorts section of this website is commonly used for the solicitation of prostitution. On July 17, 2015, the phone number listed in the Backpage.com advertisement exchanged phone calls and text messages with an individual later identified as Jerry Arnold Westrom, DOB 51666, the defendant herein. In the phone calls, defendant wanted to make arrangements to meet Katie for a half hour and was asked by Katie if he just wanted a blowjob or the full service. Defendant told Katie that he thought he had seen her about a year ago, he ultimately agreed to pay $100 for the half hour of her time. Katie asked the defendant if he had a, quote, cover, and told him that she would go get someone he replied in the negative. Based on law enforcement's training and experience, blowjob means oral sex, cover means condom, and full service means sexual intercourse. Defendant was then provided with the location of the hotel where Katie was supposedly waiting for him. Defendant was arrested after he knocked on the hotel room door given to him by Katie at a hotel located in the city of St. Cloud, County of Stearns, state of Minnesota. Defendant was searched incident to arrest and $100 was seized from him. Defendant gave a statement and admitted that he had phone conversations with a girl after viewing her advertisement on Backpage. Defendant admitted that he was going to pay her $100 for full service, which he understood to mean having sex, end quote. Wow. Jerry Westrom was still frequenting sex workers 20 years after he murdered Jean Childs. The men caught in this sting in St. Cloud, predominantly white, married men in their 40s, were overwhelmingly convicted. The sex workers, many of whom were found to have been trafficked, were provided with counseling, resources, victim's aid, and other assistance under the state's safe harbor law. 
Westrom was convicted of solicitation, a gross misdemeanor, and given probation. But this was hardly his first offense. In 2012, he'd been arrested in a prostitution sting in Brooklyn Park. For some reason, those charges were dropped. At the same time, in 2012, he was arrested for drunk driving and was convicted of his third DUI and driving with a restricted license at that time. He also had a conviction for DUI and gross misdemeanor carrying a pistol without a permit in December of 2004. It's not an overwhelming rap sheet, but the fact is that he was caught in two prostitution stings in three years. So how many times had he successfully engaged in prostitution without getting caught? I would bet it's quite a lot. For him to continue risking being nabbed in undercover stings after the first such incident indicates to me that he had something of an addiction to sex workers. And I'd say every one of the sex workers who met up with Jerry Westrom since 1993 is very, very lucky to be alive. Tragically, I was unable to speak with Detective Karakostas about this case because he recently passed away suddenly. But I did speak with another insider in this case. The theory is that something happened between Jerry Westrom and Gene Childs that Sunday afternoon that set him off. It's possible he was unable to perform. The empty condom was his, and frustrated and furious at his inability to complete the sex act, he stabbed Gene over and over and orgasmed as he was doing so or afterwards. Or perhaps Gene taunted him or said something he interpreted as demeaning, and he lost it to cover his shame. The very disorganized crime scene and the 65 cut and stab wounds Gene suffered while moving from the bathroom entryway into the bedroom onto the bed and then the floor indicate a violent struggle. The investigators believe that Jean fought back hard and her killer was enraged at his own ineffectiveness in killing her with many cuts and attempted slashes to her body that weren't fatal. The post-mortem slashing wound to her abdomen is believed to be more of the result of overkill than any kind of sadism or fantasy-driven evisceration. Something went wrong between the two while Westrom was naked. He grabbed a knife, slaughtered Jean in a messy and clumsy altercation, and went into the bathroom to clean himself up. He got his semen on the comforter and towel, and his touch DNA commingled with Jean's blood on the sink, red t-shirt, and blue washcloth. Smears on the toilet base show that he possibly sat on the toilet with blood-covered legs. Then he showered, dressed, and left hastily, probably taking the knife with him. He could have deliberately aimed the showerhead into the bathroom in an attempt to destroy evidence, or it could have just gotten knocked aside as he climbed out. Whether or not he took the stairwell is unknown, but from what I understand, the drops and smears of Jean's blood in the stairwell were not determined to be fresh blood when they were found. Jean and Arthur had had a number of domestic incidents, and an injured Jean very well could have fled Arthur by running down the stairwell, leaving her blood behind. Westrom, all freshly showered, could easily have taken the elevator down. It's possible he rinsed the knife and left it in the drying rack in the kitchen, although that seems unlikely to me. Anyway, luck was on his side, and no one saw him as he slipped into the busy streets of Minneapolis and away, his horrific deed undetected, until the water from the shower seeped into Doris Q's apartment. Jerry Westrom is appealing his conviction. It remains to be seen what the appeals court will do. I, for one, hope that they refuse to overturn his conviction. Everything I saw indicated that he indeed had a fair trial. And the DNA evidence combined with Westrom's footprints literally etched in his victim's blood tell me all I need to know about whether he is where he belongs. After 26 years, Gene Child's case is closed thanks to forensic genealogy. And if you're one of the bad guys, they're coming for you. This case discussed incidents of domestic violence. 
If you or someone you know needs help with domestic violence situation, the National Domestic Violence Hotline number is 1-800-799-7233. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. If you'd like to listen to the show ad-free and help support the show in the process, please head over to patreon.com slash DNA ID. And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit the store at customizedgirl.com slash s slash DNA ID podcast. To contact the show, please email us at DNA ID podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at DNA ID podcast on Instagram at DNA ID podcast on Twitter or on Facebook at facebook.com slash DNA ID podcast. Finally, if you want to visit our website, go to dnaidpodcast.com. You'll be able to get all the episodes of the show, leave comments on episodes that I can respond to, and you can even leave voicemails. You'll get all the latest news about the show and important updates. Find links to our social media, merch, and a lot more. It's really your one-stop shop for everything DNA ID. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Betancourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, and Beyond Bizarre True Crime.